Rise and shine, my sinners. When Father Evil starts his day, he gets a little deadly. Deadly Grounds Coffee has the richest, smoothest flavor you'll find anywhere. It's sinfully delicious. Once you go deadly, you never go back. Order yours at getdeadly.com. Coffee's so good, it's scary. From the Chuck Barris stages in Hollywood, California, here come the newlyweds. Yes, it's a newlywed game. Now let's get our newlywed couples for today. Couple number one, married just five months, Jane and Gary Nave. Couple number two, married just six months, Carolyn and Mike Stafford. Couple number three, married just 12 months, Carol Ann and Glenn Clinkenbeard. Couple number four, married just 13 months, Randy and Rick Rollins. Those are newlyweds for today. Here's your host to star of the newlywed game, Bob Eubank. Thank you very much and welcome to the newlywed game. Four couples sitting behind me ready to play our game. And we're going to be right back and we're going to hear four very unique love stories right after these important words. Be back in What kind of a sick school is this? Surely you can't be serious. I am serious, and don't call me Shirley. You got spunk. I hate spunk. Danger, Will Robinson. Danger. Oh, righty then. How you doing? Back off, man. I'm a scientist. Don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. Say hello to my little friend. I love to celebrate from in the morning. What are you people? On dope? Stop whining. I got a crap on deck that can choke a donkey. Hey! Who is your daddy? I'm sorry, but all questions must be submitted in writing. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Can I do that? I'll be back. A dynamite! Show me the money! Don't! Up your nose when you have a hole. A what? I'm sailing! I'm sailing! You, you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it. Pull it down. Love means never having to say you're sorry. Here's looking at you, kid. We got no food. We got no jobs. Our pets' heads are falling off. Go to the coast and get together. Have a few laughs. Hear that, Elizabeth? I'm coming to join you, honey. I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV. I love it when a plan comes together. What we do is if we need that extra push over the cliff, you know what we do? Put it up to 11. 11, exactly. One louder. Why don't you just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder? These go to 11. We're on a mission from God. Hello and welcome to another amazing episode of Then Is Now Podcast. I am your host, Rigor. As we continue to introduce younger listeners to all the cool pop culture stuff of the past that they may have missed out on, TV game shows is certainly on that list, particularly game shows from the 60s to the 80s, which were wildly popular throughout those decades, and viewers of those shows have fond memories of them to this day. 
The Price is Right, Match Game, Family Feud, Hollywood Squares, Let's Make a Deal, and the $20,000 Pyramid are just a few shows that are considered classics today, and they're still popular in reruns online and on the Game Show channel. We have with us today a special guest who is host of several game shows, including Card Sharks, Dreamhouse, Rhyme and Reason, and Infatuation. He hosted the Newlywed Game off and on for five decades on both network and in syndication. The Newlywed Game became one of the top game shows in television history. But our guest is not just a game show host, he's had a long career that delves into many different facets of the entertainment business, and we're hoping to get as much of his career into this episode as we can. So sit back and listen for a fun interview with a man who is a truly a legend in game show history. Class is in session. I have a bad feeling about this. How could I possibly be expected to handle school on a day like this? Food fight! Hey, you in my class? Oh, yeah, I am today. I think you should consider transferring to shock class. Woo -woo! Now, now, very few students are severely injured in shock class. Bueller. When you were in school. Bueller. Did you ever cut class? Bueller. Yeah, I guess I did. Sure, most kids cut classes. Good, sign this. Um, he's sick. I get so lonely when I hear that third attendance bell oh, ring and all my kids are not here. Seven years of college down the drain. Fat, drunk, and stupid is no way to go through life, son. You lack discipline. As long as I'm here, there will be no grades or gold stars or demerits. We're gonna have recess all the time. Woo! Go, play and have fun now. Folks, I can't tell you how excited I am to have our guest on today's show. No one has successfully ventured into so many segments of the entertainment industry as he has. He was one of the top DJs at Los Angeles' number one radio station, KRLA, and simultaneously he opened a chain of young adult nightclubs called Cinnamon Cinders, where he booked such talent as the Righteous Brothers, the Beach Boys, Stevie Wonder, and Chuck Berry, just to name a few. He's the only living person to have promoted a Beatles concert all three years they toured America and presented them at the Hollywood Bowl in 1964 and 65 and then brought them to Dodger Stadium in 1966. Other acts he produced and financed were the Rolling Stones, Bob Dylan, the Dave Clark Five, Stevie Wonder, Elton John, Barry Manilow, The Who, and The Beach Boys, again, just to name a few. He created a PR firm where he worked exclusively with rock and roll bands, including Paul Revere and the Raiders and The Birds. For eight years, he was the sole producer and promoter of Merle Haggard's worldwide tour. His management credits include personal representation of Dolly Parton, Barbara Mandrell, Marty Robbins, and gospel singer Andre Crouch. He was executive producer of several TV game shows, as well as the NBC talk and variety show The Tony Tenille show and Buddy Hackett's You Bet Your Life. At age 37, he operated the oldest radio station in California, KWG, owned a stable of thoroughbreds and quarter horses, and also found time to manage the Everly Brothers and the Lennon sisters. He's been a commentator of the Tournament of Roses Parade for LA TV station KTLA from 1978 to 2016. He's won nine Emmy Awards, including a Lifetime Achievement Award and the Industry's Golden Mike Award. He became the last person to receive a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame in the 20th century. He's hosted a 11 different game shows and television specials, including Cod Sharks, Dreamhouse, Rhyme and Reason, and Infatuation. TV Guide named him one of the top five game show hosts of all time, but his most famous game show to this day remains the beloved Newlywed Game, a show in which newly married couples showed how well or how poorly they knew each other, which he's hosted on and off for five decades on network and syndication. Not only is he a seasoned horseback rider, an expert at calf, steer, and roping, and motorcyclist, but he's also a top-flight ice and roller skater, having 
been the California State roller skating champion for four years and an expert golfer, playing with professional David Ogren in the AT&T Pro-Am in Pebble Beach, California, where he made it to the champion fifth round on television in 1986. Currently, he's highly in demand as a keynote speaker to such companies as Southwest Airlines, John Hancock Insurance, and Wells Fargo Bank, where he shares his unique business philosophy to corporate America, which has made him one of the most successful entrepreneurs in the entertainment industry. He's written an autobiography titled It's in the Book, Bob, in which he reveals untold stories of the newlywed game, and is currently working on his second book, Short Stories About Big People. Ladies and gentlemen, it is an honor and my privilege to welcome to the show the legendary Mr. Bob Eubanks. Whoa, I'm tired now, man. <laughs> <laughs> you, you do your homework, don't you, Rod? <laughs> oh, thank you. Yes, I did a lot of uh, deep diving research. <laughs> yeah, I can tell. You know, I just can't tell how thrilled I am to speak with you today. I have so many questions for you. So why don't we start at the very, very beginning. Can you tell us about your journey to becoming a disc jockey? You went to school for it, right? Well, yeah, you know, I, uh, I when I got out of high school, I entered junior uh, college, and they didn't have a very good radio program, so I went to a company called the Don Martin School of Radio and Television, and uh, I was there, and I was there with these big, deep voice guys who had just come out of the Korean War, and it was me, Bob Eubanks. And uh, so, anyway, long story short, I got my first job at a 250-watt radio station in Oxnard, California. 200 watts went into the ocean, and 50 watts went to the cemetery next door. (laughs) You know, I even had a rock and roll album giveaway contest, and uh, I was working midnight to 8 in the morning, and I must have mentioned it 200 times. And it finally came time to give the albums away, and I said, okay. I couldn't think of a clever way. I'll give them to the first person that called, and nobody called. Oh, <laughs> so I made up a name and took them home. <laughs> That's amazing. So when you became a DJ, is that what you kind of wanted to do with your life, or was this sort of a, a stepping stone along the way? Did you have grander visions? No, that's what I wanted to do at the time. And, you know, i, I tell you a wonderful little story. One morning... I got off the air at 8 in the morning. I worked midnight to 8. And I decided to drive to the hot new radio station in Los Angeles, KRLA. I wanted to see what the big guys look like. So I drive into the station, and I'm sitting in the lobby, and come to find out the all-night man has a sore back. And so I walk, and nobody wanted to sit in for him, by the way. So I walk up to the program director and say, oh, hi there, I'm a disc jockey. And the guy looked at me, and he said, do you belong to the union? I said, no, but I can. So anyway, long story short, I borrowed $360, joined the union, went on the air that night. Wow. And I was there seven years to the day. (laughs) That's great. That's great. So at the time, who were your inspirations? Well, uh, you know, there there was a a bunch of guys like Bill Balance, who was on KFWB, and and, and people like that. Uh, I didn't really have an inspiration. I just knew what I wanted to do. The bottom line is I was not... A great disc jockey. I I was uh, what they call a, a time and temperature guy. But I was surrounded by great disc jockeys, and sometimes you're judged by the people you run with, you know. So I was there with Casey Kasem from Detroit and Dick Biotti out of Chicago and Wick Martindale from Memphis, Tennessee, and uh, you know, and Bob Eubanks from Oxnard. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I, I uh, you know, here again, I, I wasn't great as a disc jockey, but I surrounded myself with great people, and that worked for me. 
Nice. Nice. And one of the articles I read, um, you were quoted as saying that you're the luckiest guy in the world, having lucked your way into the DJ job at KRLA and then into the newlywed game. But you and a partner also invested in six oil wells in West Virginia, four of which came in. Your goal, you said, wasn't to be famous, but it was to make enough money to retire at 35. And you were 28 when you had done all that. Can you tell us about yeah. the oil wells? Well, no, I can't because I don't remember. Oh. <laughs> You're bringing back stuff that I haven't even thought about in a long time. But yes, I do remember investing. And uh, I don't think we didn't make a ton of money, yet, but we didn't lose any money anyway. <laughs> well, that's good. Good for you. Do you remember the um, the Teen Boppers radio show that you hosted on KRLA? Yeah. Yeah, I remember that, where the high schools would have their, uh, you know, I would salute a high school every night and, and talk about that. God, man, you're... You're going back 50 years. You yeah. know? <laughs> <laughs> During this time when you were the DJ, you also opened up f- five of the Cinnamon Cinder Clubs, which were clubs for young adults. Can you tell us how that came about? Yeah, there was a, a nightclub in New York called the Peppermint Lounge, and they had a band, uh, Joey D and the Starlighters, I think it was, uh, of which Joe Pesci played guitar for them, by the way. Oh, wow. And they had a hit record called the Peppermint Twist. And so... I knew in Southern California there was a need for young adults to go somewhere and have live music and dance and everything without liquor. And so I, uh, we couldn't think of a clever name, so the peppermint became cinnamon. And uh, we opened one in North Hollywood, California, and we did really well. And then we opened one in Long Beach. And then, you know, then I did three others. But it was very important because I became a talent buyer. And that really did help me when it came time for the Beatles to arrive. I was not only a disc jockey on the number one station in town, I was also a talent buyer. And that helped me in getting moving forward in the concert business, too. Oh, wow. That's amazing. And so we're going to get into the Beatles in just a second here, but... I just wanted to ask, since when you were a DJ, you were running these clubs, then you were booking the Beatles, and then I found out that you also were did volunteer work for the Crippled Children's Society. Where did you find the time to do all of these things? Well, first of all, I was a disc jockey. That took three hours, you know, and then I would go to the clubs in the evening time, and I, you know, I was just, I was a workaholic. That's all I can tell you. Uh, I would play a little bit of golf, but uh, I just enjoyed you know, to me, it wasn't work as long as it was doing okay. But I, I enjoyed the business I was in. And I have a theory in life, Rod, that you take what you know how to do and you apply it in other areas. Right. And that's what I think I've done. Now, I have contemporaries that sit and wait for the phone to ring to do a game show, but it's never going to happen, man. Right. Not guys of our age, anyway. Right, right. And around that that same time, you did something called the World Teen Fair, which concluded at the Pomona Fairgrounds. And you wanted to make that an annual event. Did that ever happen? And, and what was the World Teen Fair? That was just a, a fair for teenagers. And uh, no, it didn't happen as a regular event. No, it, uh, I, I think I did okay the first one, but that one took a lot of work. And so I kind of got out of that. <laughs> right. <laughs> So now, you and a gentleman named Reb Foster not only had the foresight to, to bring the Beatles to America, but you also had the guts to gamble on his, on their success. Do you want to tell us about that process and what you had to do to nab the Beatles? Yeah, and, and, and in fairness, and I, this is not a derogatory statement, I got Reb involved because 
he was the program director at KRLA, and I was afraid he was going to steal it from me. So I had a partner by the name of Mickey Brown. And what happened was when the Beatles did the Ed Sullivan show, 70 million people that night watched, and the, the music world changed that night. Right. And then they announced they were going to tour America, and they signed with an agency called GAC. And GAC went to their regular concert promoters at the time, and one of the fellows, the name was Lou Robin of a company called Sight and Sound Productions. They went to him first, and he said, how much? And they said, $25,000. He said, I pay Sinatra 15000 Why should I pay these guys from England 25000 He turned them down. Oh, wow. So I stepped forward, and I said, well, here I am, disc jockey. I'm a talent buyer with your company. Help me out. And uh, they said, well, you've never produced a concert before. I said, I know, but here we go. And they said, well, you can have the Beatles if you have the Hollywood Bowl. I got a hold of the Hollywood Bowl, and I said, and they said, well, you can have the bowl if you have the Beatles. So I finally got everybody on the phone, and we agreed, and bingo, that was it. Then I didn't have 25 grand, so I had to borrow it on my house, you know. <laughs> right. Right. That's amazing. So now, is it true that the Beatles actually, um, you wanted them at the Rose Bowl, but they would prefer to go to the, the Hollywood Bowl because it, it had, quote, immense musical prestige? Well, I, I just wanted a bigger venue because the most they would let me charge was, uh, you know, I, the tickets were three, four, five, six, and seven dollars. And that's all three years, by the way. Wow. So I wanted a bigger venue. So the first year, you know, by the time I paid I had to buy some advertising on the station. I had to buy some uh, some advertising in the newspapers and, and stage crew and the whole nine yards. You know, there was not much left over. And then I had three partners, for God's sakes. But I, I uh, you know, I made a total of $4,000 and I had to split that three ways the first year. <laughs> wow. Wow. And you sold what, like something like 12,000 tickets in less than three hours? Yeah. Eight, though it was almost like 18,000. And uh, when when we went on sale, the Hollywood Bowl guy, you know, told a lady working for me, she said, can we sell it out in one day? He said, you'll be lucky to sell it out in a week. Well, three hours later, he came to her and said, guess what? We're sold out. (laughs) (laughs) But there were kids. There were kids. I don't know if you know anything about Southern California, but there was a line for tickets almost down to Hollywood Boulevard from the Hollywood Bowl. That's a long ways. So we sold it out right away. And, and, you know, I'd never produced a concert before, so I didn't hold back enough uh, tickets for the VIPs and the other celebs and such. So anyway, there's some great stories. Do you remember the name Walter Winchell? Of course. Well, he put in, in his the newspaper article that there would be a second show at the Hollywood Bowl. And I'm telling you, the bowl was, it looked like a mound of girls all of a sudden. <laughs> And so I called him up and I said, Mr. Winchell, yeah. <laughs> I said, first of all, I want to thank you for all you did for my family during World War II. We listened to you every night and you kept us up. Yeah. I said, well, you put in your article today, sir, there'd be a second show. And I said, I just want you to know there won't be. He said, go to hell. He slammed the door. <laughs> I cleaned it up a little bit for you there, my friend. That's fine. <laughs> Anyway, there was no second show, and I found out later why there was no second show the first year uh, is because uh, they were going to do a charity event for the president of Capitol Records the next night. Oh, okay. That made sense. So they probably wanted the time to clean the place and all that. Oh, yeah. 
So you mentioned uh, something about the VIP tickets, and I, I read that there were quite a few people who were like highly placed government people and others that they were basically middle-aged guys requesting tickets from you for, quote, a teenage niece of mine. Um, how, did you, how did you deal with that, considering the fact that it was sold out? Well, I did hold back a few. Uh, there used to be a, a very popular uh, a society lady named Luella Parsons, and I remember she sat in the last row of the Hollywood Bowl, uh, I traded Michael Landon a TV appearance for a couple of tickets. Oh, wow. <laughs> I'm trying to think who else wanted. Oh, Sinatra's, Sinatra's office called right away and wanted tickets. So I, I did have a few. I did hold a few back, but I didn't hold enough back to make everybody happy, I tell you that. Yeah, that must have been interesting. And you had something, at least as far as I could tell, you had like 100 policemen inside to keep order. But then, you know, you were concerned about the traffic outside because there wouldn't just be ticket holders. There'd be all kinds of, you know, onlookers and people that wanted to get a gander at what was going on. You know, how did that go? Because I I read a report that um, there were people that were trying to jump up and down on cars to see maybe, I don't know, over the wall. I don't I don't really know what it looks like. But what it was, there were there were people up on a hill behind the bowl and. You know, about four o'clock in the afternoon, you know, I had just done the figures of how much we're going to make and everything. And I'm standing and a bus comes in and I said, can I help you? He says, there was a a bus load of marshals. And I said, what are you doing here? He says, we're here to protect the homes on the hill behind the Hollywood Bowl. I said, oh, that's good. I'm glad. I said, who's paying for you? And he said, you are. (laughs) What? So that was the only issue. We brought the Beatles in in a, uh, in a limousine, and uh, we took them out in a little bitty car that nobody could see at any time. And we got them out, and they were on the freeway before the audience quit clapping. But they, they ruined the limousine. And that was always the biggest problem with English accent, is getting them in and out of a facility. Right. And, you know, having known just how popular the Beatles were and you saw them on Ed Sullivan, were you mentally prepared for what was going to go on that day? No. And at the end of the concert, I said, I will never do this again because I worked so hard to make so little money. Right. But then I got smart. Then, you know, the Beatles made KRLA number one. And so what I did then is I went to KRLA and I said, look, we can make this KRLA and Bob Eubanks present. I said, I can get them. They came to me. The Beatles wanted me to do the second year because they liked what we did the first year. And I said, okay, but I insist upon having two nights. And then I went to KRLA and I said to KRLA, we can make it KRLA and Bob Eubanks presents. But I want a hundred grand. I want to raise in my salary, which was twelve five. I went, raised it to fifteen thousand a year. <laughs> And then I wanted a five-day work week, and I got all of that. So I made more money than the Beatles did the second year. <laughs> wow. That's great. And so originally, you were, you guys were kind of in a battle with KFWB for the title of being the official Beatles station of Southern California. Was there ever a concern early on that maybe they'll bag the Beatles before you did? No. And, and what happened was KRLA made a disc jockey, Dave Hull, the Hull of Allure. They made him the fifth Beatle. And he spent his life, literally... Uh, his life working with the B, working on that project. He even had a guy at the pressing plant at Capitol Records, and he put him on salary. And so we got the records before anybody else did. <laughs> he made friends with George Harrison's mother, and he got all the Beatles' uh, home numbers and gave them out on the air. And oh, jeez, <laughs> geez, 
you know, just crazy time. That's crazy. So how long after the three concerts did your relationship with the Beatles last? Did it continue? Yeah, in 1966, then, they wanted to play the bigger stadiums. And uh, so I went to Dodger Stadium and got there. It's interesting. The first year, they were wide-eyed and inquisitive. Paul wanted to meet Jane Mansfield. You know, the second year, they were tired, I could tell. And the third year, they were literally a band that did not want to be together anymore. And I did the second to the last concert they ever appeared in for money. They went on to uh, San Francisco, and that held 50,000 people, and they only sold 22,000 seats. Wow. Uh, so Beatlemania was starting to, to you know, slow down a bit. John had just made the comment, we're more popular than Jesus Christ. And there were all kinds of demonstrations and things like that. But even at Dodger Stadium, it held 45,000. I sold 40,000 seats, but I couldn't sell the Centerfield bleachers. So we put some speakers out there, and we had the blind children come in. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Speaking of the children, I, I read an article that was written by two, two teenage girls who had attended it. They were from Arcadia High School. And they mentioned that one point during the performance of one of the opening bands, I think it was Cannibal and the Headhunters, a helicopter came flying by flashing Boss Radio KHJ. And afterwards, you hopped on the mic and said, well, that station hasn't got its fourth letter yet. <laughs> I thought that was hilarious. Yeah. Something like that, yeah. It needs its fourth letter. Uh, yeah, you know, it was it was a crazy time. I'll tell you a story. In at Dodger Stadium, I told the guys, I said, "Look, we've got a, we put the, the the stage at second base, and we put a tent behind the stage, and I had a I had a limousine in the tent. I said, when you guys are done, just put your instruments down, jump in the limo. We'll take you out the center field bleachers, and you can. We'll take you down to meet your armored car, which they came in. Well, during the concert, someone let the air out of the tires of the armored car. Oh, jeez! <laughs> and uh, it went down to the gas station to, le- to get the air. And the Beatles, after the concert, and they only did thirty minutes all three years, and they always ended with the little Richard Longtall Sally. Right. They jumped into the car, went out to the center field bleachers. I'm up on the stage like an idiot going, the the Beatles have left the premises. And everybody started to laugh. Well, there were about a thousand girls waiting for them out the center field bleachers. And they literally, the the, the limousine came limping back in. (laughs) So we took them out, put them down in the Dodger dugout. And John Lennon, who had come to me earlier and said that they wanted to get out because they had to go to a party. He was so angry. He said, we want to go to a party. And, and he and I got into it pretty good. I said, all right, I'll get you out of here. So we took him upstairs and put him in the back of an ambulance, and we covered them up. And I told the ambulance driver, now just drive right down through the crowd. No one will say anything, and we'll be walking on the peripheral. And so he did. He drove right down through the crowd, and he, you know, he got away from the crowd. And he was heading down to the gas station, hit a speed bump, but the radiator fell out of the ambulance. Oh, my God. God. And now here comes the armored car up to the ambulance. Now the kids realize what's going on. So we get the Beatles out of the ambulance into the armored car. But now the armored car is a stack of girls. <laughs> I mean, it couldn't move. And then I don't know how this happened. I really don't. All of a sudden, the Hells Angels motorcycle group showed up. They circled the armored car. The girls backed off. 
And the Hells Angels led the Beatles off of Dodger Stadium. And that's the last time I saw the Beatles or the Hells Angels. Wow. That's incredible. I can't imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> and did you at least stay in touch with any of the Beatles over the years since then? Or? Well, only one time. Uh, Hollywood Bowl wanted to do a 50th anniversary. So I got a hold. Uh, I sent Paul a, an email. And he responded saying he could not attend because he and his family were going to be on on a holiday at the time, but he left a message for me to read out to the audience. So I couldn't get involved in that. And the Hollywood Bowl produced the 50th anniversary. And I'll tell you, it was the worst piece of crap I've ever seen in my life. I wow. mean, Billy Ray Cyrus, Martina McBride on the Beatles. I mean, come on, you guys. Anyway, yeah. uh, that didn't work so good. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, that's incredible. So you mentioned Casey Kasem worked with you at the radio station. What was he like in person? Oh, he was a, such a good guy. I mean, he was such a good guy. He he lived at the at one of the big hotels there in Beverly Hills for a long time. And, and then one time he was at his agent's office and this girl, deliver, delivery girl, came in. Long story short, he ended up marrying her. But he, he was just a really good guy and i have nothing but nice things casey and i got into it because he asked me to sit in for his television show one time and being the jerk that i am <laughs> casey always said you know keep your feet on the ground and keep reaching for the stars and so the way i ended i said you know i said keep your feet in the air and keep reaching for the ground well it made him mad <laughs> so anyway but we became very good friends we really did that's great. Yeah, I always remember listening to Casey Kasem on the Top 40. And in fact, one time I was sitting in the back of my parents' car. I think we were getting ice cream or something. And I heard his voice. And I realized that he was the voice on an animated show that I watched. Not Scooby-Doo, but it was, it was a Japanese one that was imported. And I went, I put the two together. And I was like, oh, my God, I love this guy. <laughs> yeah. You know, he did voiceovers. And, and for NBC, he did uh, the next dons. And he was just a remarkable, remarkable guy. That's amazing. So when you when you got the Beatles the first gig at the Hollywood Bowl, you kind of created a sort of informally a company called Concert Associated with Steve Wolf and, and Jim Rissmiller. Uh, do you want to tell us about how that went and where you proceeded from there? Yeah, after after the Beatles, and forgive me, but I don't remember, I think it was after Dodger Stadium we, we formed Concert Associates. And it went okay, but I, I will tell you this, that, yeah, it was, because... In 1969, I decided to get out of the rock and roll business. And so Steve Wolf and Jim Rissmiller went on and Filmways bought my portion of Concert Associates. And I just didn't want to be in the rock and roll business anymore because the whole San Francisco drug culture was coming in. And I didn't want to mess with it. And so I got out of the rock and roll business. And I stayed out until 1972. And at that time... Uh, I went into the country music area, which was my first love anyway, and signed Merle Haggard to an exclusive contract and managed Barbara Mandrell and Dolly Parton for a while. And I enjoyed the country music thing a lot. But then Newlywed Game came along about the same time, you know. Right. So was it the fact that you got out of uh, promoting rock and roll for a little bit at that point, was it because of the Stones concert in 69 where there was a, um, there was a big hullabaloo because it was supposed to be a hockey game scheduled at the same time and they didn't go on until 3 in the morning? Well, no. I mean, the Stones and I, Jagger and I did not get along well uh, because I asked him to do certain things and he wouldn't do it. 
when I say ask him to do certain things. One is to get off the stage quick, run out there and get in the car and so I can get you out of here. Uh, but I did the Stones for two years. I paid them $4,500 the first year, and I paid them $20,000 the second year for a bigger auditorium. Wow. And the whole, the whole English migration was coming over. You know, here comes Herman and the Hermits and the Dave Clark Five and all of those people. And because I did so well with the Beatles, the word got out. And so the agency came to me with these acts and, uh, we did okay. Uh, we did okay. But you know, then all of a sudden here comes the, the drug culture, if you will. Right. And I, I just didn't want to mess with it. Interesting. Can you tell us about Merle Haggard and, and working with him? You worked with him for what? Eight years, right? 10 years, 10 years. Merle and I were together for 10 years, and we never had a crossed word. He was, he was incredible. Uh, I understand they're going to do a movie on his life right now, but he, he was so talented. He was complicated. Uh, you know, here's a man that escaped from 13 institutions by the time he was 18. Wow. He spent two years and nine months in San Quentin and lived in every hobo jungle in the country. And became Entertainer of the Year in 1972, I think it was, or three, in the Country Music Association. So he, he was a remarkable guy. If you listen to his music, you listen to his life. Mama tried, you know, things like that. But I, I took on Merle, and, and we, I had an exclusive on his live performances for 10 years. And uh, it was a wonderful time. That's great. That's great. So did you have a hand in, he was in the Statler Brothers Christmas special in uh, December of 86. Did you have a hand in producing that? No, I did not. I got out in 82. Oh, I see. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Now, what can you tell us about um, some of these other performers, like the the Lennon sisters? I was so fascinated by that because they're associated with Lawrence Welk, right? Oh, boy, were they? What happened was uh, Lawrence Welk had a number one television show on ABC. And one of the acts was the Lennon sisters. Right. Now, Welk had a, had a salary of $9,000 for 42 people. Okay. Wow. That was his weekly salary. So the Lennons went to him and said, we want a raise. He said, well, you don't need a raise. What you need is to get a manager and do other things. And so they came to me and I signed them and then went to Welk and said, we want to, we want to, uh, you know, a thousand dollars, a week for each girl and he said nobody on my show makes a thousand dollars so uh that that didn't work out but i got some great lawrence welk stories you know welk had a an accent yeah he had trouble with and, and the p things like that one time okay everybody everybody on your toes then the bc execs are going to be here to pee on your toes but my favorite lawrence welk line is on one valentine's day and I hope I don't ruin run you off the air here, Raj. <laughs> no, I, I love Lawrence Welk. <laughs> the Lennon sisters, okay. The Lennon sisters had these big hearts, and they came out to sing. And Welk introduced them. He says, "And now the lovely Lennon sisters with the heart on." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, oh, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> you think so? <laughs> that's hilarious. It's because I, I I watch the Lawrence Welk show every so often. It's on like every Saturday, so I'm a huge fan. Have you? Did you meet him? Oh yeah, I argued with him, you know. And then uh, you know, Tom Jones started, came into the same studio that Welk had, and and Tom brought a bed in, and Welk wanted to know what the bed was in the studio was for. But that time, Tom was a pretty active guy. So, <laughs> wow, that's crazy. <laughs> 
So um, we're still jumping ahead a little bit here, but around that time in 86, you had been hosting the, the Hollywood Christmas Parade with Lee Merriweather. How many times did you guys host together? I don't remember how many times Lee and I hosted, but, you know, after Lee, then Lisa Gibbons came in and we did it. Right. And uh, I had some I had some funny times during the Christmas parade. That was it was I was funny. I remember a, a big church here in Southern California had a uh, decided they were going to fly an angel on a wire across Hollywood Boulevard. And so when I heard the director say, send the angel, well, something happened and she turned upside down. And we saw a little more of the angel that year than we really should have. <laughs> That's amazing. And what was Lee Merriweather like? Oh, she was wonderful. You know, she was just wonderful. Uh, I, I, I got a story, but I better not tell you that one. Never mind. Anyway, <laughs> she was great. And then Lisa came in, and, and you know, I was very fortunate. And uh, and the, after the Christmas parade, then uh, I, I uh, decided to, you know, the host of the of the New Year's Parade quit. No, he, he went to NBC. His name I can't remember. And anyway, I went in. And I said, I'd like to do your parade. And I was there for 38 years with Stephanie Edwards. That's awesome. The, what memories do you have of the Grand Marshals? Did you get to hang out with them? You know, like Robert Wagner, Natalie Wood, or, or even Lorne Green, who I heard was a really nice guy. No, I never hung out with any of the Grand Marshals at all. Oh, wow. You know, when I was growing up, I wanted to be a cowboy. That's all I wanted to be is a cowboy. And Gene Autry and Roy Rogers were my two major, major idols. Nice. And one year, Roy uh, Rogers was uh, Grand Marshal of the Rose Parade, and he and his wife, Dale Evans, were sitting up in the back of a Cadillac convertible, waving at everybody. And Roy forgot to go to the bathroom before they left. Oh, no. So there was no room to stop in the parade, so he peed in his boot. <laughs> oh, <geez. laughs> That's insane. On the Tournament of Roses Parade, you did that quite a few times with Barbara Feldon, right? Just for the first year. Oh, okay. Yeah, that was all. And then, but the rest was Stephanie Edwards. Oh, right, Stephanie Edwards. And what were they like? Oh, well, you know, they, they, were, they were fine. Your, your memory's better than mine. I'm trying to think. I, I did it with Barbara <laughs> Feldon, but didn't I do it with Jane somebody? Jane Kennedy. Okay, yeah, Jane Kennedy. And her boyfriend did some kind of a wild rock and roll thing and that hurt her reputation there at the tournament house, so... And then I guess Barbara Feldon came in for one year, and then Steph came in for the rest of the time. Oh, okay. Interesting. But Steph was great because she she, uh, she used to play in a band, a marching band, and I was in the rodeo world, so I would talk about the horses, and she'd talk about the bands, and, and, and you know, so it worked out pretty well for us. Our ratings, even when we quit, our ratings were double that of all of the competitors combined, and I'm very proud of that. Wow. Wow. And so obviously you enjoyed doing the parades. I mean, you, you always looked like you were having so much fun in them. Oh, easy money. Man. Had I known they were going to hire Lisa Gibbons, I wouldn't have quit so, so soon, I guess. <laughs> wow. Prepare for a spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Kid Radio. Here, your host, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classic and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher, or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodgson. Listen to the discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. 
And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the HP Lovecraft Film Festival. Classic monsters, modern talk, and the head of Rondo Hatton. Only on Monster Stadium. Hello, this is Rod Barnett. I'm the host of The Bloody Pit, the podcast that examines films from across the decades. On The Bloody Pit, we have several ongoing series of shows within the show focused on specific things in genre cinema that I and my co-hosts find fascinating. There's a long-running series focused on Italian maestro Antonio Margheriti's films from the 1960s all the way up through 1990. There's an on-again, off-again series focused on 1970s science fiction films. There's an in-depth look at the Western movies that William Castle made before he struck out on his own and became the horror auteur that we know and love. A look at the classic Coffin Joe films from Brazil. And our long-term project to look at every universal horror film made in the 1940s. That's a long project, people. It's going to take us a long time. Sprinkled in amongst those are various other episodes focused on other stranger areas of cinema, like uh, Lucio Fulci, Dario Argento, and even some obscure British crime films from time to time. So join me and my rotating crew of co-hosts as we examine the stranger side of cinema through an exploitation lens. Except when we don't? Yeah, you never really know exactly what to expect on The Bloody Pit. So join me for The Bloody Pit. Shark Bites, Shark Bites Podcast. It's the greatest show in history. From the Dorkening Network, hosted by a nerd whose name Patsy. From movie reviews to tips on surviving the coronavirus, Shark Bites has it all. Follow us on Facebook and suggest topics at sharkbitespod at gmail.com. Available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Um, so I wanted to move over to the sh- uh, show that you you hosted called All Star Secrets, which I, I think that premiered in June of '79, and it, it basically was a show where uh, celebrities revealed little known facts about themselves. And you, at the time, you said that it was this was the most fun I've ever had doing a game show. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience? Yeah, it was fun, you know, uh, because what I would we'd have contestants. I would tell a story, and then they would have to guess who that was, which celebrity that was about and we had a panel of celebrities and I, I remember there used to be a guy i don't know if you've ever heard of wolfman jack or not of course yeah well he was a big radio guy yep and uh the secret was one of today's celebrities owns a pig farm now who do you think it is <laughs> so they they guessed but they didn't get it right but anyway at the end of the show we always did a little segment i said hey wolfman come here i said sit right here my friend I said, we understand that you owned a pig farm. Yeah. I said, well, I'm going to make you feel right at home. And one of the stage crew guys came out and dropped a baby piglet in his lap. 
<laughs> and I remember he said, "Ooh, do we bite?" <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. It's, Ooh, do we bite? Some of the celebrity secrets on there I thought were amazing. You know, you get Vic Tayback takes bubble baths every morning. Um, Artie Johnson has an IQ of 146. I mean, they're hilarious. <laughs> I, I don't know where you get all this information, but I'm going to take notes. That's great. <laughs> Yeah, I got I got that one from a newspaper article about it. It was it went on and on about. It. I mean, you know, Norm Crosby has an elephant good luck token that he kept with him for twenty five years. Uh, Rex Reed won first prize at a country fair for growing the largest zucchini. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's fun. <laughs> that's so good. That's so good. I I actually wish I had seen that show. I don't. I never actually got to see it. So tell us about, you know, you know, in show business, you were expanding what you were doing. How did you get involved with the Ali Frazier fight? Well, I had an agent by the name of Jerry Parencio. And Parencio was a, if, if there was anybody in my life that I treated as a father figure, if you will, or an advisor, it was Parencio. He, he was at, at GAC when I bought the Beatles and he formed his own company. And he ended up buying a television station. And he just made a lot of money. So he was a big boxing fan also. So when the Ali Frazier thing came along, he and Norman Lear ended up getting the closed circuit television for four states. So Prentio called me because he used to represent me and we got along pretty well. And he said, Will you, are you interested in producing this or at least helping me promote it? I said, sure. And so I worked for, for Jerry during that time. Uh, with, and there's another guy, Alan Horn, who is now a big cheese at Disney. He was there. But it was a strange time. And uh, there were strange, strange people going at that time. That's all I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> and I know Jerry Parencio is a billionaire. Was he a billionaire at the time he was working with you on that? Well, if he wasn't, he was almost. Wow. You know, he... Uh, but he was a good guy, and I had a good time, but uh, I was glad when it was over, I can tell you that. Yeah, it, it must have been difficult with the logistics. I mean, I don't, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but was this among the first times where an event was broadcast live to more than one place? Yeah. Uh, it, it, it was the first time I think they ever did closed circuit. Right. And, you know, and the, and the uh, in New Orleans, the big hall there, what's it called? Help me, Roger. It was the Superdome, in, yeah, in New Orleans, and then the Astrodome in Houston. Well, Superdome had just been built, and uh, when we when we did the fight, about five thousand people sneaked in because the security didn't know how to handle it. It, it was just a, a crazy time, it really was. But uh, I met Muhammad Ali, and he he was wonderful. It's a fond memory, but nothing I'd want to do again. I can tell you that. Right, it must have been a tough challenge logistically just to get it to work, and uh, it was like five. Uh, it was California, Louisiana, Texas, and Nevada, right? Yeah, and you know, the guy that owned the forum here in town, Jack Kent Cook, he and Parencio didn't get along, so Parencio told me, don't sell this to Cook. Well, Cook just went on the air and started advertising the fight was going to be there, so we had to get it, you know, bring him on board because he had sold a bunch of tickets to it. <laughs> wow. It's really interesting, too, because nowadays you, you have events that are broadcast to movie theaters and drive-ins all the time, but th that must have been really just logistically difficult. That was really logistically difficult. That's all I can tell you. Okay. And nothing I want to do again. <laughs> <laughs> so let's move into um, the Newlywed Game, which was sort of a replacement uh, for a short-lived series called Confidential for Women, starring Jane Wyatt. And uh, how did how did that happen for you? Well, 
I I was doing a uh, I was doing a concert with the disc jockeys and and I forget what act it was. But I remember talking to Bobby Boris Pickett, I think it was. I said, "Who's your agent?" And he told me, and he said, "But the best agent for you is a guy named Noel Rubeloff." And my friend Charlie O'Donnell said, "Bob, you're not, you're not going to be able to sign with Noel Rubeloff." So I bet him five dollars, and I went and met with Noel, and he says, "Well, now Chuck Barris has put together a new show called Newlywed Game, and he already has a host, but uh, he's willing to let some other guys try out." So I, I went over and met with Chuck, and I'd never, good God, I'd never done a game show in my life. So he said, okay, we're going to bring four couples in. He did. And I got lucky because one of the husbands had been out all night, and his wife just reamed him, and it was pretty funny, and I got credit for it. <laughs> so I ended up getting the job, and that was the beginning of a wild time because I'll never forget, we had to show the format to the big guys in New York. And so they all flew out to Hollywood. There was four or five of them. And we were in a little theater, no cameras, just a stage and lights. And we had four couples. Couple number one was an unknown comedian named Dom DeLuise. Oh, wow. And his wife, Carol. But what sold the show was there was a cute little blonde down at the end. And I said, okay, what's your favorite nickname for your husband? <laughs> and she said, numb nuts. <laughs> And the ABC guys flipped over backwards, went upstairs, and bought the show without a pilot. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's awesome. And you had guys that wrote um, the questions for you, but you had the final say on what questions you used, correct? Yeah. You know, when you lock four guys in a room to write questions, you know, this it can get pretty wild sometimes. So I would turn down questions. You know, for, they wanted me to say make love. And now this is 1966, right. and television was pretty quiet. And I remember I was in a car with my daughter, and this disc jockey said, I get horny when it rains. And my little girl said, what's horny mean? And it made me so mad. So I said, guys, I won't say make love because I don't think you should have to tell your children what that is until you're ready to do so. So Sinatra had a hit record called Making Whoopi. And uh, I said, I'll say Whoopi because it could be anything. And that's how Whoopi became a four-letter word. <laughs> wow, that's crazy. Are, do you ha happen to know, are there any statistics on whether the couples that you had on the show um, after the game got divorced? Oh, yeah, a lot of the couples got divorced and they came back with what? Oh, no, I don't think so. I, I don't think so. Uh, I, I'll tell you what, interesting story. <laughs> we, got a, we got a call one day from a lady that said, uh, I saw my husband on the newlywed game with some woman and he's still married to me. This, this idiot went on the newlywed game <laughs> with this girl he'd been going out with and, and faked his license. I mean, how stupid can you get? <laughs> oh, man. You know, I, you know I, one of the things I read about you is that you had studied Johnny Carson's his timing, his eye reactions, and his throwaway lines. And I noticed when I go back and look at some of the... Um, the clips on YouTube where they're sort of like the newlywed game's funniest moments. In the early ones, you would just literally break out into laughter when something funny or off-color happened. But then I noticed in later years, you just sort of would give the camera a sideways glance. Was, was that something to do with when you studied what Carson was doing? Absolutely. You can say a thousand words with an expression. Right. You know, now a comedian, forgive me for this, a comedian hosting a game show can't stand to let anybody else be funny or funnier. And that's why I think comedians do not make good game show hosts, 
I mean, I produced Buddy Hackett's You Bet Your Life. And, and Hackett was a talented guy. But one time we had a lady on the show that could whistle and hum the same song in harmony at the same time. And he took her to her knees, made her cry. Oh, my uh, God. It's very difficult for comedians to be game show hosts because they always want to try to outstar the format or outstar the contestants. Wow. Uh, Steve Harvey, by the way, is wonderful. I, I think he does a great job. Uh, who did Steve Harvey? Oh, Steve Harvey. Okay, yeah, yeah. Did you were you ever on the Tonight Show, or did you ever get to meet Johnny Carson? Uh, no, but I used to see John. I was doing, when we were doing All Star Secrets at NBC. He would come in, and we would get. I bumped by John. That would be it. <laughs> I bumped by John. Wow. So you took Newlywed Game uh, on the road, and um, you did versions of it at malls and stuff. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, this lady by the name of Charlene Trishon out of Atlantic City, New Jersey, called me and she said, I have an idea. And I thought she was crazy at first, but we ended up taking the newlywed game to shopping malls around the country and playing the game. It wasn't on television, just a live show, you know. And so uh, we did, God, we did a lot of those for a long time. It was fun. Were the live shows a little bit more body than what you could put on TV? No, not necessarily, because I had a live audience there and and we were in a mall, and I couldn't do anything off color. I had to, I had to make sure. Oh, okay. I mean, we still, we said whoopee. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I, I know you have your book out um, that discusses sort of untold stories from that show. Is there anything that you can share with us? Uh, it depends on what subject you want to talk about. I mean, we had some questions on the Newlywed Game I thought were hilarious. <laughs> you know, in the hamburger world of romance, is your husband a Big Mac, a quarter pounder, or where's the beef? <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I was always amazed when I see, you know, some of these guests, like they don't know simple things. Right. You know? <laughs> well, that's, that's, you know, and we made it like, uh, what's your husband's, uh, what, what, what happens to the electricity when you, when you turn the lights off and the little girl said, well, the electricity goes from the vibrator to, to the, to the, the where you plug it in. <laughs> yeah. I saw that one. Huh? <laughs> what's your husband's favorite rodent? Is karate school, you know. <laughs> in which direction in your neighborhood does the sun come up? I got three different answers, you know, so. <laughs> what will your husband say is his very favorite kind of rodent? Georgie? It's a rodent. His very, <laughs> his very favorite kind of rodent. <laughs> his saxophone. <laughs> say is his favorite condiment oh i would say his pool table upstairs definitely <laughs> annette i i never heard that word before neither so i said karate school electricity in our home flows from the blank to the what from the plug to the vibrator <laughs> Now, you were once asked if you'd ever be a contestant on Newlywed, and your response was, no way, I wouldn't bear my soul for a Toastmaster. <laughs> Is that still Not true? A, a toaster. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> no way, man. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the reason that the prizes were not big is because if the prizes had been big, the couples would try to cheat you. And and we even caught them trying to do that. I would ask a multiple choice question. And let, let's say my wife and I agreed. Now, when they ask a multiple choice, let's pick the one that starts with the letter closest to the letter A. 
in the alphabet. See? So we caught them cheating that way. So, no, I wouldn't go on a newlywed game. Like you say, bear your soul for a toaster. But we didn't have big prizes on purpose. Interesting. <laughs> it was a comedy show. It wasn't necessarily a, a game show, if you will. Right. It wasn't life-changing like Dreamhouse. No. <laughs> wow. So, speaking of which, you mentioned uh, Chuck Barris, who produced it, and he also produced The Gong Show, of course. You know, what was he like? Was he really a former CIA operative? No. <laughs> but he was, a, I remember the first time I met Barris, went into his office and he had a urinal on the wall. And I'm going, God, is this? You know, uh, he, and he had a, he had a parade every Friday morning in the halls of his office. Uh, he was just a, a crazy, funny guy. And I'll never forget when the gong show, they, they pitched the gong show uh, to NBC and they did the pitch and the, and the guy said, well, that, that sounds really good. He said, okay, Chuck. Well, who do you want to get to host it? And Chuck said, well, Gary Owens was uh, somebody we thought of. They said, well, that's a good idea. So they left. And Barris turned to his guy, Buddy Grunoff. He says, don't even call Gary Owens. I'm going to host it. And he did. Wow. <laughs> but he wasn't a part of the CIA. <laughs> So um, you'd also mentioned, you know, Buddy Hackett's You Bet Your Life. And you, you said he brought a lady to tears. What was he like? Was he difficult to work with? Yeah, he was difficult. And, uh, you know, if, if I'll never forget one time, one of the pages in the auditorium seated a person. And he wasn't supposed to, but it was a new page because Buddy was out doing his comedy thing. And Buddy got so mad, so mad. And he cussed the guy out and the whole thing right in front of the audience. So I brought the page backstage and I took him into Hackett's room. I said, Hackett, I said, you made this guy cry. He said, oh, I'm sorry. I said, well, you owe him a big apology. He said, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> but Hackett, the, 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 the theater had to be like 60 degrees because he said, uh, you know, if it's too warm, hats, uh, laughs rise. I said, huh? <laughs> so he's on stage at the Sahara, and he couldn't stand anybody smoking. And so in the front row was a guy smoking. He said, hey, you SOB, put that cigarette out. He really nailed this guy bad. Come to find out the guy was the president of U.S. rubber, and Hackett was fired from the Sahara right then. You know? Oh, jeez. <laughs> well, you know, I'll never forget, I was at a party at his house one night, and it was... Cary Grant and Glenn Ford, Hackett and myself and our wives. And Cary Grant said to me, Bob, I have to sit next to you at dinner. I said, why? He says, well, my wife and I, Barbara, we watch the newlywed game every night. I said, wait a minute. Cary Grant watches the newlywed game? <laughs> he said, yes, we're a real couple. I said, what do you mean by that? You're a real couple. He says, we only have one toothbrush. Oh, <laughs> so much more than I wanted to know about right. Carrie. Yeah. That's hilarious. And by the way, that was an uh, amazing Buddy Hackett impersonation you did there. I loved it. Yeah, Bob. Yeah. <laughs> Put that cigarette out. You know, he was funny. <laughs> That's awesome. But talented. He was talented. Oh yeah, he was hilarious in, in his you know in his movies and stand up. I'll tell you an interesting story. We were at dinner, and Carrie said, I've got to sit next to you at dinner. I said, okay. So we're sitting there talking, and all of a sudden, Carrie's, and, and by the way, Glenn Ford is across the table from us. Wow. Carrie Grant says, I have a joke. And Hackett said, okay, what's your joke? He starts to tell this joke, and 
just as he gets to the punchline, Glenn Ford from across the table said, I love you, man. I really love you. And the thing just came to a stop. So Hackett says, okay, everybody wants your smoke. Go outside. So we got up and, and I went to Hackett and I said, what was that about? He says, well, Glenn was one of the first people into Auschwitz and he still has the smells and he still has the, the dreams of that terrible time and it has affected him mentally wow and so was the joke uh related to that no of course not no he just i love you man i really love you oh interesting wow i didn't know that about glenn ford that's really interesting yeah um it, one of the the listings i found when i was looking at tv listings that in uh, may of 76 bob barker hosted the daytime emmy awards which was live and apparently you and Bert Convy and Bobby Van performed as a musical trio. I didn't know you added musical talent to your uh, repertoire. <laughs> I didn't. God did not tune me. <laughs> and that was the last time I did anything like that. I'll tell you a couple of Barker, Barker stories. He, he, certainly a good, a good host, but Bob had quite an ego. And he was also an animal lover. You know, he, was, he was hosting the Miss Universe pageant, and they gave the winner a fur coat. He quit. He, he would not partake in anything where they were giving out fur coats. It cost him a six-figure number to quit. That's an animal lover right there. Wow. But I shared a dressing room uh, at CBS with him when I was doing card charts. And when he was there, I wasn't, and vice versa. So on the wall was this big plaque, WGMC, and very ornate and very beautiful. So being the jerk that I was, I took the plaque off and I put it under the couch. Now, I'm out at the ranch and we're roping cattle. And I get an emergency phone call from Jonathan Goodson. I said, what's up? He said, where's Barker's plaque? I said, what plaque? He said, don't, don't mess with me. Where is it? I said, oh, for God's sake, it's underneath the couch. I said, what's the problem? He says, he won't go on. He won't do a show until we find the plaque. I said, you're kidding me. I said, what does that WGMC mean? He says, world's greatest MC. Boop. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's incredible. Hey folks, I just wanted to take a minute here to tell you about the hosting service that we use at Haven Podcasts, podserve.fm. Podcast hosting has never been easier. They do all the work to get your podcast on Apple Podcasts and other major podcast networks. They help you navigate the podcasting world, whether you're brand new or have years of experience. Folks, I can't tell you how happy I am with their service. When I first started this podcast, I searched around intensely for the right hosting platform. I found PodServe and used their simple four-step process, and in a short amount of time, my podcasts were on the internet and available through all the major podcast networks. And their customer support is unreal. Every time I goof things up and make a mistake, like uh, posting the wrong show to the wrong feed, I email them, and I kid you not, within minutes I get a response and the problem is resolved. And they're the only podcasting host that actually helps you get listeners. Other podcast hosts stop at Podcast Upload and don't help promote your podcast. Well, PodServe makes sure your podcast is seen by thousands of people. The promotion is free, and they put you on PodParadise.com, which has over 5,000 visits a day from avid podcast listeners and is growing every day. Each day, Pod Paradise selects five podcasts to spotlight on their front page. Maybe yours could be there soon. PodServe's pricing is simple. Only 19 bucks a month. That's it. No tiered pricing platform, just one low fee. For 19 bucks a month, you get 
unlimited storage, unlimited podcasts, free podcast promotion, your podcast on all platforms, detailed download analytics, one-on-one customer support. You pay month to month and you can cancel at any time. And when you sign up, you get 14 days free. You don't even have to give them your credit card. I love their service so much, I put a reminder in my phone to add my credit card when the 14 days was almost up. I couldn't give them my 19 bucks fast enough. I'm telling you, I, I really didn't believe it until I actually signed up and saw my podcasts on everything from iTunes to Stitcher and Spotify and more in a ridiculously short amount of time. So if you've got a podcast and you don't have a hosting platform, I highly recommend podserve.fm. Check them out. So um, tell us a little bit about, you know, you've had a couple of the shows here, like Rhyme and Reason and Card Sharks. Uh, what tales can you tell? I mean, Rhyme and Reason obviously had uh, Frank Gorshin, of course, and uh, Nipsey Russell. Yeah, and uh, J.P. Morgan. Yeah. Uh, people like that. Uh, you know, it was, it was a fun show. There's interesting, Rhyme and Reason was on the air, and Mark Goodson hated it because he thought it was a takeoff of one of his shows. And so... From what I understand, he basically got it canceled. I don't know. But, uh, and then he never would call me to audition for any of his shows. So one time at the airport, I ran into his attorney and I said, I said, hey, tell Mark I would love to work with him. So when Card Sharks came along, uh, I auditioned and I got that show. Wow. That's great. And, um, you know, like Card Sharks too, you did, you did so many game shows. What, um, did you just like to continue to reinvent yourself on a different show? Yeah. Uh, and I found that I learned how to make people talk. I learned that if you laugh at people, they give you nothing. If you laugh with people, they'll just keep rambling on and on and on. And so I was able to use that ability and to not outstar the format, not outstar the, the contestants, make them feel very important. And that's what I tried to do. And it worked for me. That's great. What about the Diamond Head game that you did in Hawaii? First of all, did you get to live there while you were? Obviously, you stayed there while you were doing it, right? Oh yeah, you know, and that was a that was an interesting time. It, <laughs> I could go on and on and on. It, that was a time. That it was fun to do. Had a good time. But the show went. It was on NBC, and you know, we did. I think. I think we did 35 shows in, in eight days or something like that. And it was, it was a tough time. It was a tough time. Yeah. Was it difficult? I mean, it was very different. You had the, the volcano and stuff. And what, people had to climb the volcano, I think? No, they didn't have to climb it. But they would get inside of it. And then they would... I remember we had this big plastic area where the contestant could go in there. And there were about 500 pieces of paper flying around them. And each piece of paper had a prize on it. And they would have so many seconds to grab how many prizes. It's just a crazy time. It was was, uh, interesting. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So one of the listings that I found that I did not recognize, and uh, shame on me for not having caught it in 1990 when it was on, was on A&E you did Bob Eubanks at the Improv. Can you tell us anything about that? I don't even remember. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that was a TV listing from 1990. Wow. Yeah. I've been busier than I thought I was. You know? <laughs> I mean, you're asking me to come up with things uh, basically 40, 50 years ago. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know? I'm just picking your brain. Yeah, um, that's okay. Well, what can you tell us about Dreamhouse? I mean, because that, that like changed a lot of lives. Well, they should have called it Dream Furniture. 
Oh, really? Because we had a rough time giving the houses away. You know, we finally did. But, uh, you know, a lot of couples on. And uh, here again, uh, it, it was a fun show, I guess. But uh, we it didn't live up to its title as far as I was concerned. Hmm. Yeah, what I, from what I've read, there was one of the uh, contestants was a lady from Panama who grew up in a one-room house with six people. So, do, have you stayed in touch with any of the winners from that show at all? Oh, God, no. No. <laughs> I, I had a lot of fun with a show called Infatuation. Oh, yes. I was going to ask you. No. Have you ever had a crush on somebody and you were afraid to tell them? So uh, one day we had a little lady about 60 years old come to us and said that she was an extra in a movie and she met this young Hispanic man and he took her out in the car and made love to her and he she fell in love and uh, so we contacted this guy and we said someone has a crush on you he says really he said yeah we, we said would you like to be on this show yeah so the way the show worked we would put the guy in an area where he couldn't hear anything and I would interview the lady and she said well we were working as an extra on a movie, and I met this very talented, you know, very handsome Hispanic man, and he took me out in the car and made love to me, and, and she said, I'm in love with him. I said, well, why don't we get him out here right now? And so the guy had no idea who was there, had a crush on him. He walked out, and he almost died when he saw this woman, because he didn't think he would ever see this old lady again that he took out into the car. And uh, he, he just, I mean, he just about died. And, and they filed suit against us. Oh, uh, and the, the lawsuit said we were going to ruin his Hispanic romantic reputation. <laughs> so we settled out of court. We agreed not to show it in Los Angeles. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Ay, ay, ay. So um, I wanted to move on to another topic here. Uh, something that I think a lot of people don't know about you, Bob, is that you appeared in several pro rodeo telecasts with the uh, the Professional Rodeo Cowboys Association. How did that come about? I mean, obviously you said you wanted to be a cowboy when you were a kid. So was that sort of always in your blood? Yeah, I, it was. And, you know, and then I went on and I, I got my first horse when I was 10 years old. But then I... Uh, I I started roping, uh, team roping, and then I joined the Professional Rodeo Cowboys Association, and I competed in rodeos here in Southern California for quite a while. And because of my rodeo experience, I met people, and then I was approached to be the moderator of the the national championship in Oklahoma City and then in Las Vegas. So I I I hosted the, the televised version of the national championship for, I think, three years. But yeah, I was always wanting to be a cowboy and still do. I got a, I'm looking at a saddle right now in my office with no horse, by the way. Oh, nice. That's excellent. That's so cool. I mean, especially like you said, with, you know, Roy Rogers being one of your heroes and, and all that. And from what I understand, your kids have sort of followed in your rodeo footsteps as well as TV stunt work. Are they still doing that? Well, my one son, Corey, you know, he, he became a professional bull rider. But then he uh, he got a job on Dukes of Hazard, and he learned his craft there. And he became the number one stunt driver uh, in the industry. He did Too Fast, Too Furious, Transformers, and all of those. Wow. And he's made a, a lot of money, a lot of money. He didn't go to college, and he has just done extremely well at what he does. Has some great stories to tell, too. And one time he was he was supposed to double Robert De Niro, and they had not met. So they got in a car, and they were sitting there by themselves. And every time Corey would look at De Niro, 
De Niro would look away and he wouldn't say anything. And so pretty soon their eyes met. And my son says, uh, so uh, uh, what do you do? <laughs> and De Niro says, I'm an actor. And Corey said, oh, yeah, what, what, what's your name? You know, <laughs> uh, that's hilarious. And did you open a stuntman school at your ranch? Uh, not at the ranch, but we did hold a stuntman school. And uh, we found out that it was very tough for stuntman to become stuntman because it was a, a business where one guy would recommend another guy would recommend another guy, you know. And, and so it was difficult for new guys to get involved, you know. But he doubled, you know, he, he doubled Tom Hanks, even though Tom would admit it. People like that. He, huh. He's made a lot of money. Wow. And, you know, I've read a lot about your ranch and stuff. And um, you and your uh, wife at the time, Irma, had held an auction at the Pepper Tree Ranch with all kinds of Western memorabilia and Indian artifacts. And Well, it wasn't an auction. It was an art show. Oh, it was an art show. Okay. Yeah. You know, we were having some issues, marital issues. She said, I don't want to ever have to depend on you again. So she put on this art show twice a year called the Pepper Tree Art Show. And uh, she did extremely, extremely well with it. She really did. Nice. And I, w I ended up going on Home Shopping Network selling Native American jewelry and, and Western art. And right. I was there for four years. You know, we'd do five or $600,000 in eight hours in sales. So That's amazing. And did Walter Brennan Jr. show up at one of the art shows? Because I guess he had a portrait of his father there. I don't remember that. I really don't, Roger. Oh, interesting. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's funny. No, they. Um, I guess they were at those at the art show. There was um, horse demonstrations and steer roping. Did you just sort of jump out and do some of those yourself? Yeah, yeah. We did. We, you know, we would have roping contests there and all of that. You know, it's. Uh, I was a cowboy. I, <laughs> mentally, I still am. But you know, people ask me how old are. He's how old are you? And I always tell them I'm seventy degree up seventy. I'm seventy years old plus shipping and handling. <laughs> so. <laughs> That's great. And your ranch is near uh, former President Ronald Reagan's ranch. Is that correct? It was pretty close to it, yeah. Did you know him? I, I, uh, I, no, I, I, I met uh, the president, but not uh, while he was at his ranch. I remember my two boys were out on the yard at our ranch, and one of them had a rifle, and they were looking at it. And, and my, my son pointed it up in the air, and all of a sudden there was a helicopter with a presidential seal on it. And he said, here, you hold it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> scared him to death. But uh, no, Reagan had a ranch not too far from from my ranch. My neighbor was Bo Derrick, though. Oh wow! Yeah, that's what I said. <laughs> that's awesome. And, and how was she as a neighbor? <laughs> oh, she was great, you know. And she was married to John at the time. And, and uh, right. But uh, I think she still lives up in that area, but I'm not sure. Wow, that's awesome. So, uh, Bob, tell us about your your speaking engagement. I'm sorry, your speaking engagements that you do with corporations these days. I haven't done any in a long time, but I'm going to get back into it because like what you have done, you've brought things out in my career. So I'm writing this book uh, called Short Stories About Big People, and I'm going to go out and tell short stories about big people, show video, and uh, it's going to be fun. It's, it, I think it'll be very entertaining. Excellent. Excellent. And uh, are you still affiliated with the 60 and Up Fitness? Oh, am I ever. Let me tell you what happened. I was walking out of a meeting one time with a guy by the name of Dan Metcalf. And I was having trouble walking. I was walking bent over. I had been falling down. I was having all kinds of issues because I had both hips replaced and severe back surgery. And he said, are you, you're having mobility issues. I said, am I ever. He said, well, come over to my house and work out. 
So I went over to his house to work out, and which, by the way, this guy has 30 professional soccer players playing worldwide that he's trained. Wow. And he invented this board just for me, to, for my balance. It's called the 60 Up Balance Board. And I will look you in the eye and tell you that in a very short period of time, it changed my life. All of a sudden, I wasn't falling down anymore. I'm back playing golf, for crying out loud. So he took it, and we tried it out on a couple of our friends, and they got the same response. So we raised about a million and a half dollars in 30 minutes, and it's been out on the market now. And, Roger, we're changing the lives of many, many people worldwide, seniors, uh, people with Parkinson's, the 60-up balance board. And if any of your listeners uh, have balance issues or know someone that does, simply go to 60up the number six zero and then up.com. Take a look because I'm telling you, it's miraculous. And at this point in my life and my career, what I want to do, I want to help people. And it changed my world and it will change a lot of people's world. It's just great. That's all. That's incredible. That is so incredible. So what are the projects you have going on? Well, I'm writing the book. And, uh, you know, I, I have a Beatles show called Backstage with the Beatles. It's a live Beatles show, which I tell never-before-heard stories that lead up to music. And I have a Beatle band on stage with me. Then we have a live game show that we play casinos when we can, you know. And it, it's called Hollywood's Greatest Game Shows. We play nine different games. And at the end of the games, somebody has a chance to win a million dollars. And we pray to God that they will win it. Wow. And uh, we play casinos with that. And so just having a good time. Yeah. I'm very blessed. My wife is the number one wedding planner in all of Southern California. Excellent. She has a company called Bella Vita Events. And my oldest son is 62 and my youngest is 17. Wow. <laughs> good for you. <laughs> and do you tour the Beatles show or is that locally? No, we tour it. We tour it whenever we can now, you know, and we, we usually sell it out. There's still a lot of Beatle fans out there, I'll tell you. Oh, yeah. Do you ever get to the Boston area with that, or do you plan on it someday? Haven't yet. Haven't yet, but I would, you know, if, if anybody was interested. Oh, excellent. It's, it's, a, it's a great show. Like I say, I, we show video, we show stills, and I tell stories that lead up to music, uh, Beatle music, and we have the Beatle band on stage with us. And it's a, it's a wonderful evening, really. That's awesome. That's awesome. So how can the listeners find you online? Yeah, 60up.com. If you or anybody in your family is having balance issues, uh, I'm telling you, it will, it, it will do miracle things. And, and it's just wonderful. Right. And what's your personal website? Uh, Bob at BobEubanks.com. Excellent. Excellent. Well, Bob, it has been a pleasure. We could probably talk for another three hours, but I'm going to let you go shortly. And uh, you're truly a legend. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, you know more about me than I do. And, uh, <laughs> but I'll, I'll leave you with this. A, a lady walked up to me one day and said, how would you like to have super sex? I said, I'll take the soup. <laughs> That's great. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, Roger. Well, folks, I had an amazing time talking to the legendary Bob Eubanks here today, and I hope you enjoyed the show and learned a lot about this amazing man. I highly recommend that you get online, check out all of his websites and videos and all the great shows that he's done in his career. Let us know what you thought of this episode. Remember, you can send your feedback to thenisnow42 at gmail.com. You can also join in the conversation at our Facebook Then Is Now podcast group. 
Then Is Now Podcast is a proud member of the Dorkening Podcast Network, so please be sure to check out our other great shows there at thedorkening.com. You can also visit our website at havenpodcasts.com, where you'll find our sister show, The East Meets the West, in which we discuss Shaw Brothers films and spaghetti western movies. And Then Is Now is on YouTube, so visit youtube.com slash user slash UncleDeath1 to get the latest videos as well as other fun videos. Please subscribe to our YouTube page and also share the video versions of our podcast with your friends and get them to subscribe as well. Don't forget to go wherever you download your podcast from and leave us a great review so that more listeners can find us. You can find us on all the podcasting apps, especially the big three, iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. Class dismissed. For more shows like the one you just heard, check out the Dorkening Podcast Network at thedorkening.com. educational and informational purposes only. Sounds, music, and clips played during this podcast are the property of their copyright holders. All original content is copyright Jupiter Media. Sugar went out. You know, he was funny.